and encourage you to take out your Bible, turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. As we begin our second message in this great book, and we talk about today the divine makeover, part one. You know, as we uh, think about the world around us, Eastern religions, Hinduism uh, mainly, out of the Hinduism comes Jainism, Sikhism, and Buddhism as well. But in their thought, they're trying to find the knowledge that's beyond this world, the hidden knowledge, the secret knowledge that only Brahma can give them. And uh, they're seeking after that. And what they do is they deny themselves of their fleshly desires through many different means. Some of them will go once a year to the Ganges River and wash themselves and cleanse themselves from sin. Others will sit on a bed of nails to deprive themselves of, of joy and happiness. And all this is to find a knowledge that's above this world, that transcends this world. And as we think about this, Peter in this passage is going to speak to those kinds of things, those pagans, those uh, pantheistic religions that emphasize looking inward to their soul through meditation, through asceticism. Asceticism is, like I said, when they get on a bed of nails or do anything to uh, starve themselves or whatever to try to connect them with the next life. Other methods they use are chanting, blood sacrifices, meditation. And in the past, even people were sacrificed so they could find this eternal truth. So Peter begins this book by saying that the only way a person can attain true and eternal knowledge that explains reality is to become renewed spiritually or be born again. The false teachers of that day thought they could gain a, another world knowledge that would take them above the world's morality. But Peter countered that thought by saying that through the divine knowledge found in God and through Jesus Christ, it would give believers all they need to live a godly life that glorifies God. Peter, using the language of pagan teachers and philosophers of the day in this passage, redefines their terms and gave them Christian meaning, words like godliness, excellence, virtue, nature, and corruption. So let's dive into this text this morning in 2 Peter chapter 1. I encourage you to follow along as I read. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have attained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Let's review. If you look on your notes, I encourage you to take out your outline. We're going to look at a little bit of last week. We didn't get to finish the last point, so I want to review and bring us up to where we are. We talked about who is the author. Simeon or Simon Peter. He, was described, he describes himself as a bondservant. He describes himself as an apostle, one who walked with Jesus, who was resurrected with Jesus, who was given the authority to go out and proclaim the gospel. Who is his audience? Well, it said in 2 Peter 1, the second part of verse 1, it says, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours 
by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We said those who are saved just as the disciples were. You and I, we have the same salvation. We came to faith the same way they did by trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and by faith to receive by grace the gift that he's given to us, eternal life. And those who saved by the co-equal God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He points out in that passage that Jesus is equal with God. And he uses the term Savior, the Savior of, our, of the world from sin. We said salvation is a gift from God that we have to receive for ourselves. That Jesus bore the full anger of God's wrath upon his body when he was on the cross. He became the substitute for your sin and my sin. And he took the world's sin upon himself. And the good news is, is that when we come to faith in Christ, he imparts to us righteousness, taking our sin away from us. That's called imputed righteousness. And by that great exchange, we are found acceptable in the sight of God. And we have direct access to the very throne room of God when we pray through the name of Jesus and by his blood. So today's message on the outline what is the aspiration? What is it that we're going to benefit or gain from all that? What is that that we aspire to? In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, he goes on and says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Notice the first thing here, the unending stream of grace and peace to the Christ follower. Grace and peace. Grace, I love the acronym, G-R-A-C-E, great riches at Christ's expense. Getting something we do not deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve, but grace is a gift, getting what we don't deserve. And we get peace with God. He talks about that word peace there, peace with God. And we see that described in Romans 5.1. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, you and I, if we're a believer in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him also we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We should say amen to that. We stand in the grace that we are justified, that when God looks at us, he looks at us just as if we've never sinned. The slate is wiped clean and we have peace with the creator, the one who made us. But then he goes on, if that's not enough, he says we have the peace of God. The peace of God that comes through the Holy Spirit described in Philippians 4, 7. Paul says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I've experienced that so many times in my life. When you pray, when you seek a decision, when you ask God to give, us, give you wisdom or direction in life. And when a decision comes, you get that peace that you know that you've chosen God's will and God's directive. The Apostle John in John 1.16 says that grace is continuing to pour out on us each and every day and in each and every situation. John 1.16 says, For from Christ's fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace, past grace, present grace, and future grace. I like how the psalmist said it. They went from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. You know what God is saying? He's saying, guess what? I'm going to give you enough grace for just this day in front of you. And Jesus talked about that in Matthew 6, how we're not to worry about the next day, but the day in front of us. 
For this present day is full of trouble, and God promises us in Lamentations and other places that that grace will be poured out to us, and also the mercies of God as well. That every morning when we wake up, we stand before God and we know, and we say, Lord, I know that you've prepared me for this day, and your grace is going to go with me and before me. That's an exciting thing. It's much like the manna that the Israelites received and trust in God. God knows what you and I will face each and every day, and he provides the resources through the word of God, through the Holy Spirit, through other Christians and other ways to have the peace of God and the grace of God in our lives. And all this comes from God, but we have to be in God's word and intimately connected to God in prayer. Then we see the unending stream of growing and experiencing, growing and experiencing God more on the Christ follower's spiritual journey. There's that word knowledge. Knowledge here is a word in the Greek called gnosko. Does not translate well into English. It has a different meaning in the Greek than when we think of knowledge. We think of knowledge as something that we read or we study or we have to regurgitate this information for a test or whatever. But in the Bible, what it means is once you read it, you go out and you do it. It's kind of like on-the-job training. When you get trained for a job, you go to work. And sometimes, yeah, you begin by reading and you do some computer work nowadays or whatever. But then you go out to wherever it is and you watch somebody else do it. And then they give you the tools and you do it as well. This is the idea that we are experiencing God day by day. This is knowledge that's applied, that's experienced. The knowledge spoken here is not from feelings. It's not from intuitions or emotions or personal experience, but only from the revealed truth based on the gospel preached in the word of God and then the teachings beyond the gospel in the word of God. And it comes by faith. Romans 5.17 says, So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So it's not intellectual truth alone, but applying and experiencing the truth for yourself by using that knowledge. And so that's why he says at the end of this book, in one of the theme verses, 2 Peter 3.18, probably the fourth verse I learned as a new believer, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He will give us what we need each day. Our day of conversion is only the beginning of our spiritual journey. We begin by taking baby steps in the faith, and we continue to grow and pursue God each day of our lives. So the knowledge is given and hopefully applied to us by bringing blessing and honor and glory to God our Father and to our Lord Jesus Christ. As I get older in my life and I I think about and look back at how God has worked in my life, it just gives me confidence each and every day, not in my ability, but in the Holy Spirit and how he's going to take care of me. That no matter what situation I get myself into or God brings into my life, I have that quiet peace and that confidence because guess what? I'm not alone. I have the Holy Spirit. I have the one who will help me, give me the information, help me to know what to say and what not to say at the right time. And I hope that you have experienced that kind of confidence, that kind of knowledge and experience that you've tasted of the Lord and seen that he is good. Our application here is this, as Christ followers, we must live in the continual flow of grace and the gifts that come from God's throne. We must live in the continual flow of grace and the gifts that come 
from God's throne. So our next main point is this. What is the acquisition? What do we aspire to? And now what is God giving to us? The benefits, the acquisition. The Christian life begins with our coming to Christ just as we are and putting our faith and trust in him. But then we begin to experience God's power and it produces in us life and godliness. So we see four things here. We have sufficient power. We have sufficient power for this life. Look at 1 Peter, 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power has granted to us. God gives you and I divine power. We can't earn it. We can't will it. We can't coax it in and of ourselves. We just have to receive it and live in it. It's kind of like John 15 where he gives us that example of being in the vine and connected. And we just rest and abide in him and he will provide for us. This is where so many people stop in their Christian life. They get saved and they enjoy some measure of God's divine power and working in their lives, but they don't trust God to use the maximum amount of resources God has for them at their disposal. The purpose God gives to us is to be spelled out later in this verse for life and for godly living. So what does it mean divine power? Well, divine is taking from the Greek word theos, which means God. Divine means all that pertains to, has a stamp of, points to God. It means superhuman power, predominant power. I like the idea. It means ultimate reality, and it's from a supreme being. Power is where we get that word dynamite, dynamos in the Greek. It is speaking of the power that God used to resurrect Jesus from the dead. That same power, believe it or not, dwells within us in the form of the Holy Spirit. Paul points this out in two places. In Romans 1, 4, he talks about that power. And then Colossians, he's going to tell us about how that power works in us. Romans 1, 4, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That was God's stamp of approval that Jesus truly was the Son of God, who he was, who he said he was, all his teachings. But in Colossians 2.12, you and I having been buried with Christ in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Man in and of himself does not possess any spiritual power. This power was granted to us, given to us by the Holy Spirit at the moment that we crossed the line of faith and that we accepted Christ as our Savior. And the reason I or we have a power problem with utilizing the power in our lives is lack of trust, lack of faith, lack of obedience. We don't believe we have it or we don't tap into it as an endless source of joy, strength, and help in our lives. I like this little story In 1957, a graduate student of Columbia University named Gordon Gould had been working with pumping atoms to a higher energy state so that they would emit light. As Gould elaborated his ideas and speculated about all the things that could be done with a concentrated beam of light, he realized he was onto something. In his notebook, he confidently named the yet-to-be-invented device LASER. And I didn't know what LASER meant. That's an acronym. Light amplification 
by stimulated emissions of radiation. Light amplification by stimulated emissions of radiation. Over 60 years later, we're still seeing the impact of this remarkable tool. Lockheed Martin boasted about their new laser. They had this ground-based laser that in a matter of seconds burned through and destroyed a car engine. What was more amazing, this thing was a mile away when it did it. The company called this laser system the most efficient and lethal version on the planet. From a spiritual perspective, the laser represents the ultimate expression of the impact we can have in this world in need of light. If we're able to understand the stunning power of unity expressed in the laser beam and translate it into our own lives, we might have a greater impact on those around us than ever before. So are you experiencing that resurrection power in your life? As God points out areas of change in your life that you and I need to make. Do you see the power of God at work as you go about your day? That stunning power working in our lives can be seen by those who need Jesus around us. Sufficient power. Second of all, sufficient provisions. Sufficient provisions, supplies, resources. Look at the middle part of verse 3 in 2 Peter 1. All things that pertain to life and godliness. All things. I can still hear my seminary professor saying this over and over and over again. When you come to the word all in the Bible, remember, all is all that it means, and that's all that all means. All is all. That's everything. Okay? In 2 Corinthians 9, 8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That's a great verse to memorize. A great verse to claim as a promise each and every day. Notice he says sufficient there in 2 Corinthians 9, 8. Having all things necessary to live a godly life independent of the outside circumstances and independent of what outside resources can provide. The Holy Spirit does for us things that far exceed our ability, our personality, and that our talents can provide. He talks about life there, abundant life, as Jesus talked about in John 10.10. Godliness, becoming more and more like Christ. We need to learn to be content in that and abide in Christ with that thought. 1 Timothy 6.6 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And when all is well with your soul, with you and your creator, Hurricanes and chaos can come all around you, but it cannot touch the inner man. I think of a small boy that was riding a Sunday school bus home, and he was given a card in Sunday school that says, have faith in God. And he was sitting there, and all of a sudden, the crosswind came, and it blew that card out of his hand and blew it out the window of the bus. And he screamed at the bus driver. He said, stop, stop. I've lost my faith in God. So he stopped, and as the little boy went out, one of the adult riders said, oh, the innocence of youth. But one of them said this. He said, all of us would be better off if we were that concerned about our faith. All of us would be better off if we were concerned, that concerned about our faith. Remember that you and I, we are complete in him. Colossians 2.10 says, and in him, in Christ, you have been made complete. And he is the head over every ruler and over every authority. 
I think of stories and, and, and things I've studied about Jewish weddings. And it's a m massive feast with lavish food and drink. Everyone's invited to come to the table just as they are. Everything is provided with nothing less but the best. Jesus talked about that in Matthew chapter 22, talking about the kingdom of God. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who held a wedding feast for his son, and he sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent other slaves saying, tell those who've been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fatted cattle are all butchered and everything is ready, come to the wedding feast. God has given us a feast of resources for us to uh, uh, take from, to come to that table, to provide and apply to our lives. I think too many times we underestimate God. We're too, we think he's too miserly with his grace. Sometimes we feel gives a, God gives us enough grace to save us, but he doesn't really care about the details of life after that, that his grace is limited. And we may not say that, but we may at times act like that in our lives. Sometimes we even feel like we can lose our salvation because we backslide or we get complacent in our faith or we lose our first love for the Savior. Life has a way of making those things happen to you and I from time to time. And I don't know about you, but sometimes you can be in the Word, you can be praying, and you feel like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. You're not getting much out of the Word as you read it for yourself personally. And in those times, you just need to stay faithful. Those are the times that you don't let the emotions take you away or look for a new teaching in your life. But God wants you to worship him, to stay in the word, to pray, to, to seek after him in your service as well. And over time, God is going to work in your life to do something supernatural because he always has our best interests in mind. When God is seemingly silent and we're waiting for the Lord, it's a time to be careful, not to allow our emotions run away with us. It's interesting that sometimes we let our emotions speak to us when we should be quoting the word to our emotions and speaking to them because they can fool us. What keeps God's power from flowing to us and through us? Well, obviously, the Sunday school answer would be, first of all, sin. Sin, obviously. The Israelites had this problem in Psalm 78. They were in the wilderness, and uh, they were griping and complaining, and they wanted to go back to Egypt. In Psalm 78, the psalmist wrote, how oft did they provoke God in the wilderness and grieve him in the desert. Yea, they turned their back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. They remembered not his hand, nor the day when he delivered them from the enemy. See, they had spiritual amnesia. They forgot all that God had done in their past. And sometimes that limits us because we, we forget about what he's done and how he slayed the giants in the past and now we're facing a bigger giant. So sin, spiritual amnesia, timing. God is preparing you through trials and tribulations or developing character in your life. He's molding you and preparing you. You want to get on to the big things, and he's working on the little things in your life, preparing you for the next thing he has in place for you to do. Self-sufficiency. We think we're strong enough. We think we're smart enough. We think we're talented enough to go at it in our own strength. And I think another one that uh, limits God working in our life is 
the lack of faith. James 4 says, we do not have because we do not ask. But there is no temptation. There's no demonic assault. Nothing that can take away God's lavish and abundant provision on our behalf. Remember, just a couple weeks ago, we were talking about money matters of the heart and Malachi 3. And God says, trust me on this. Give me the tithes and offerings and I will open the windows of heaven and pour out blessings that you can't contain. It's by faith in him. So the same God who saved you is the same God who will sustain you in this life and the life to come. Sufficient power, sufficient provision, now sufficient payment. Sufficient payment. How do we experience the abundant life Jesus promises us in 10.10? Look at the end of verse 3 of 2 Peter 1. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We already mentioned that word knowledge, that it's more than head knowledge or reading and believing something. It's acted upon. It's, uh, we step out on faith and experience it in our lives. You know, you don't know how cold or warm the water is in a swimming pool many times until you dive in. You could go to Six Flags and you can look at that great roller coaster all you want, standing beside it, looking at it through the fence. But until you get in line and you get strapped in that car, you're not going to experience it for yourself. And he's saying, we have to experience it for ourselves. Notice that phrase, him who called us. Two calls by God concerning salvation. First of all is the efficacious call or the general call for all to come to faith in Christ. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We understand the gospel. We understand the theological meaning of receiving Christ as Savior. Salvation is offered to all. In Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the efficacious call. It's available to all. But the effectual call that results in saving grace, it's a creative call that will always accomplish what it's desired to do. In Romans 8.30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those who God has chosen before the foundation of the world, he's going to bring them through to perfection, to have the same body and life as Jesus Christ into eternity. It's the call of God in our life that will keep us to the end of this life and for all eternity, and you can bank on it. That call comes to the revealed majesty of Christ, as he says, the glory, the excellency. Glory here. Glory in the Bible, as it's mentioned, always and only belongs to God alone. Sinners see God's glory, and that equals the deity of Christ. And unless sinners see Christ as the glorious Son of God, who is the Savior, in the preaching of the gospel, they will not be saved. It talks about glory as God, but now the excellency, his perfection in humanity. We see that he is the substitute for our sins. He was tempted in all points like man, yet was without sin. So when we think of glory, we see him as the Son of God. Excellency, we see him as the Son of Man. And through Christ, we all have salvation, blessings, and power to live the Christian life. Otherwise, it would be impossible. You know, we have a couple babies now, Walter and Norrin here. And, uh, and as I think about those lives, I think about how God has perfectly prepared them for life. In their genes, there's everything they need to grow and to become who God wants them to be. 
God doesn't have recalls. He doesn't bring them back and, you know, fix some parts or anything. Everything within that little baby is going to help them to live however long that they live. Well, just think about that as Christ follower as well, with God giving us his divine nature, we have the ability and the manifestations of the fruit of the spirit to live the life God has planned and purpose for each and every one of us. So sufficient power. We saw sufficient provisions. And then the payment. Lastly, we're going to see the sufficient promises. The sufficient promises. Look at verse 4 as we close today. Verse 4 says, By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. God gives you and I with his precious and very great promises that were granted. It doesn't just mean to bestow or to endow, but in the meaning of that word, it's a great and costly gift that's given, granted. And then you see precious, valuable, given at great cost. In this case, the price for this gift was paid for by the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, by shedding his blood on the cross. As we go through 2 Peter, actually as we went through 1 Peter and 2 Peter, we see over and over that precious is an important word to Peter. He talks about a precious faith in 1 Peter 1.7. He talks about precious promises that cost the blood of Christ here in 2 Peter 1.4. He talks about the precious blood of Christ in 1 Peter 1.19. Precious stones in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 6. And a precious Savior in 2 Peter 2.7. And then he says you have these granted precious promises, very great promises. He adds some descriptors to promises. That means magnificent. They're coming from a great God. Do you realize that there are 7,487 promises in the Bible? And some are unconditional and some are conditional. Some are for Israel and some are for the New Testament believer. 7,487 different promises. When my great-grandmother Rice passed away on my dad's side, one of the things that I was given as a way to remember him was this little wood box. And I'm, I wish I knew where it was. It's probably in some box in my basement somewhere. But I remember that we had it for a while. And uh, in it, you opened it up and on top it said the precious promises of God. And you opened it up in these little round colored papers with a band around it. They looked like little baby scrolls. And there was a little wood dowel. And you stuck it in at the breakfast table every morning and pulled one out and opened it up. And it was a, a precious promise from the word of God to carry with you for the day. That's what God wants us to do is to appropriate, to apply those promises to our lives. Think of some of the promises of God in Jeremiah 33, 3. He says, call unto me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things. In John 15, it says that Jesus said that you and I can do greater works than him. I think of Daniel chapter 11, verse 30. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do great works. There's promises for our spiritual life, power for this life, the Holy Spirit, and on and on we could go. Why does God give us these promises? That through them, we might become partakers of his divine nature. 
You see, in verse 4, that word become is so important. That means in present certainty. It's happening right now, not way off in the future. This verb, become, become builds on everything Peter has written about so far. And that word partakers means fellowship, partnering, someone who shares an experience together here and now of eternal life. I think about that. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, just before he was arrested and executed, he said this, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. Brother and sister in Christ, you and I, we are friends with God. We're in partnership. We're partakers of that divine nature. What does that mean, divine nature? doesn't mean that we become God, but we have characteristics coming from the Holy Spirit that makes us have some of the same limited characteristics as God does. Thinking of a baby once again, you know, a baby's born into a family. And over time, that baby begins to have characteristics of the mother and father. And if they have siblings, they take on those characteristics of a family. You can often pick out uh, a kid in a group of kids. If you know the families, well, you can oftentimes pick them out because of some of the mannerisms or things that they say of whose parents they are. Well, think about it. As Christ followers, you and I, we take on the characteristics or nature of God because he or she is part, that we, are, that we are part of God's eternal family. So if we're partakers of God's nature, we as Christ followers have the power to escape the corrupting nature of this world. You and I, we've escaped the efforts of sin, derailing and destroying our lives. That word escape there means to have a successful flight from danger. A successful flight from danger to be delivered. Corruption there talks about an organism that's dead, that's decomposing, that stinks. In Romans 1, you read the second part of that chapter, God gave the people over to their futile thinking. They were thinking about the world without God in the equation. We're seeing right before our very eyes the end game of sin, the corruption, right out in our culture. We see the pain and the absurdity that's causing many people, and we as Christ followers have to live with the effects of it all around us in our families, in our workplace as well. But be encouraged, in Philippians 3.20 it says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and here's the promise, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Folks, this world has an expiration date on it. When we get to 2 Peter 3, we're going to talk about, I'm not sure how it's going to work, but somehow by fire and heat, he's either going to destroy the earth or he's going to scrape the surface off and rebuild it. But he is going to save his people from the wrath to come. And I say amen and amen to that. And remember as we close that if we feed the new nature with our reading and heeding God's word, we stay in intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father in prayer and worship and serving by using our spiritual gifts. We bring honor and glory to God and he will bless us. He will provide for us for all of our needs. That's why in Romans 13, 14, Paul ended this chapter by saying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision to the flesh for the flesh to gratify its desires. Godly living is a result of cultivating and feeding the new nature that's within us. 
We need to be intentional in our daily care of the divine nature that we possess from God. So here's our application. How could we make better? How could we make better? That's the blank there. Better use of the resources. That's the second blank. How can we make better use of the resources God has given us to live a godlier life? That's what I want to leave you with today. Many of us, we, we wish we had uh, more power for certain areas of our life. And as we've laid out, it's all available to us. If we'll appropriate it, we'll apply it to our lives. Our key thought here is this, is this. May we, by faith, may we tap into the resources. And I hope this week you will seek out God and talk to him and, and build your faith to tap into the resources of the divine nature that is given by God to each Christ follower by the Holy Spirit so we can escape corruption and live a godly life. We have the means to do it if we will simply trust and obey. So as we go to prayer, are you enjoying the great and precious promises God wants you to claim by faith? Let's bow for prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want to encourage you today. Maybe you're sitting here and you hear this message and God is challenging you to ask him to help you increase your faith, to stand on the grace by which we stand, as Paul said in Romans 5, to stand on the promises of God's word. And maybe your faith has been struggling and weak. Maybe you're like the father of that epileptic that came to Jesus and he said, I believe, help my unbelief. I've been in that boat many times where I want to believe, but help my unbelief. And maybe you're here today, maybe you say, dear Lord, help me to trust you more. Help me to ask you to increase my faith. Just simply slip your hand up. No one's looking around. I just want to pray for you that you want to ask God, yes, to increase your faith. Yes, to trust him more in your life. Yes, numerous hands. Yes, let's pray. Father, what an amazing passage of scripture. You repeat yourself over and over in these few verses to drive home with emphasis that we have everything we need, that we don't need to look at the new and the shiny thing out there. But Lord, if we just get into that deeper, intimate relationship with you, that you will increase our faith, that we can take these promises, that when our emotions and our feelings tell us we can't, we can say, yes, we can, because of the, what the word of God says, because of who I am in Jesus Christ and what I possess through the resources of the Holy Spirit. Be with those that raised their hand this week. Encourage them. Help them to experience you in new and fuller ways this week. We pray and ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.